theyeshiva.net. Shavua Tov. We're in good old Yiddish, Agutavach. To one and all. For those of you who were with us this Shabbos at the Palm Beach Synagogue, where we are now, we had an incredibly inspiring and uplifting Shabbos. And I welcome you back for the ninth time. <laughs> and for all of those of you who are joining us now, this wonderful Motsari Shabbat Saturday evening, Prochim Habayim, welcome to what I hope will be a meaningful journey to, to explore some of the dynamics of relationships, to search for a relationship knowing it's the right one, finding the right one, etc. I'm going to begin, as I always do, with one of my favorite Jewish anecdotes. Israel, for many years, had a defense minister whose name was Moshe Dayan. You remember Moshe Dayan from the patch on his eye. Legend has it that he was once driving on an Israeli highway 145 kilometers per hour, which in Israel is not that fast. A policeman stops him and says, General Dayan, you ought to serve as a role model for Israeli society. Yet, you're driving like a madman, hence I'm going to quadruple your summons. Moshe Dayan looks at the Israeli policeman and he says, Officer, look at me. I have only one eye. Now, what would you like me to do with that one eye? Look at the speedometer or look at the highway? I do not know, friends, if Moshe Dayan received a summons or not, but I do know that the response is an insightful one. Because in life, one can often become obsessed with looking at the speedometer, failing to see the highway. I can become consumed with asking myself how fast or slow I'm going without appreciating the larger picture. What is my highway? What is my destination? What is my mission statement? What I want to achieve? Tonight, hopefully, we want to address not the speedometer, but we want to address the highway. Make yourselves comfortable, make yourselves comfortable. So, I'm going to try to make a few points. I'm going to ask Hashem to suspend my ego during the following conversation so that I could become a conduit for his wisdom and his energy and God's love and to be able to channel that to you, all of you wonderful people here this evening. 
I'm going to finish my points, and then I want to open up the floor to conversation, to dialogue, to questions and answers, to objections, or as good Jews, alternate speeches. <laughs> Point number one. Life is mysterious, if you haven't figured that out yet. People's journeys are mysterious. The secret of each soul is a secret indeed. We often ask the question, why did he die? Or why did she die? It's a good question. But the question really begins much earlier. Why was he born? Why was she born? We usually don't ask that question because we take it for granted. We hear, we hear, but it's really an important question. Why? Why am I here? And every soul has its journey. Every soul has its challenges, its blessings, its virtues, its vices, its pain, its anxiety, its struggles, its opportunities, and its gifts. And often, I speak to people and they say, you know, 20 years ago, I should have done this. 15 years ago, I could have done this. 10 years ago, I would have done this. But I was either stupid or foolish or listening to this one or listening to that one or I hoped for this and I hoped for that and I thought about this. And here I am today. I made so many mistakes in my life. What now? So let me tell you, all of us can sit and live life with the two words, what if? What if? What if I would have been here? What if I would have been born to another family? What if 20 years ago I would have gone here? What if 15 years ago I would have agreed to the date? What if, what if, what if? But living in that space deprives me from the ability to live in the present and to create a future. This doesn't mean I didn't make mistakes in my life. This doesn't mean you didn't make mistakes in life. But this does mean that a lot of life is mysterious. And the fact that we were put in certain circumstances is usually not due to our errors, but due to nature, nurture, and really God's choices. And there comes a point in life where we have to be able to accept and say, here is where I am. Here is ultimately where God wants me to be now. What am I going to do with it? How am I going to maximize it? How am I going to create something wonderful from this? The Kabbalah speaks a lot about the idea that creation is perpetual. Meaning Hashem did not create the world 5,774 years ago and then like a clocksmith winds the clock and the clock goes on its own. No. Creation happens every single moment. In other words, being in tuned to the miracle of creation always means being in tuned to now. Being in a relationship with God always means being present now. Because if now I am living with yesterday or obsessed about tomorrow, I am not attentive to the energy that's flowing right now into the universe and into me and creating me literally something from nothing. So if I'm obsessing about the past, then it deprives me from what's called dveikut, intimacy, oneness 
with the energy of creation right now. And if I'm just rehashing what I did yesterday or a week ago or 10 years ago, God turns to me and says, hello, I'm creating you now, right now. Relationships happen now. Life happens now. If now is meaningless, then tomorrow is meaningless and yesterday was meaningless. Of course, I want to learn from the past. Of course, if I made a mistake in the past, I want it to serve as a springboard for the future. Of course, I want to prepare for the future. But life is always about now. So I'm going to ask you tonight, many of us live with mistakes, with messages in our minds. What could have, what should have, what would have, if, 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 if. And we know that. And especially if you're Jewish, this is an intense part of the Judaic experience. And your mother has it even more than you. And your grandmother even has it more. What if, what if, what if, what if. And I'm not discussing if it's right or wrong. But life has to be about now. And when it could be about now, then it can be about tomorrow, tomorrow, and the next day. That's, I think, an extremely important point. Which brings me to point number two. And point number two is... In Judaism... And in Torah, journeys are destinations. Meaning, we don't look at journeys and saying, when I arrive to the destination, that's when life begins. Because you know what? When we arrive to one destination, there's always another destination to arrive to. It's rather about realizing there's wholesomeness within the fragmented journeys of life. I'll say that again. There is wholesomeness within the fragmented journeys of life. God is present in my life not only when I win the lottery, and not only when I reach this and this point. I hope to reach that point, and I hope you reach that point. But the journey towards it, the preparation towards it, is also very meaningful. You know, often, this is in the general society, we often say, you know, life, It was a question. There's always a question. When is a fetus called viable? At what point? So the Jewish consensus was when he graduates medical school. (laughs) Till then we're not considered viable. And it's always, you know, now I'm not really alive. I'm just in college. When I graduate, I'll become a mensch. And then when I graduate, I don't really have a job yet. When I have a job, then I have a job yet, but I'm not married. When I get married, and then when I own a home, and then when I have kids, and then when I retire, that's when life begins. No. Life is now. That's where life is. Hashem is creating you now, as I said. Relationships are now. Of course, I want to look forward. I want to build towards a future. I want to plan towards a future. But you can't pull the rug out of the fact that every day must be fun, exciting, exhilarating, and meaningful now. And that's at the essence, the essence of the Jewish perspective. You know, they say there was once a scholar who was considered a genius. He would travel from town to town and he would answer every question. One smart aleck decided he's going to catch this genius. So at the lecture, he's answering all the questions. People are wowed. This man looks at him and says, So, this bird that I'm holding, I'm clenching in my fist, this little tiny bird, genius. You know how to answer every question? Is this bird dead or alive? Of course, there's no way for him to win because if he says the bird is dead, he just opens his fist and the bird soars away. 
And if he says the board is alive, the board is alive, he just clenches his fist tightly and kills the bird. So he says, so tell me, is the bird dead or alive? And the man looks at him and says, the answer to that question lay in your hands. I can always live with blaming, with past, but the question is, can I create my life now? And I could, because God is creating me right now. There's a new person who can respond to that energy. So that's point number two. So point number one was, we could sit all day and speak about what if, but we want to focus on the present and on the future. Point number two, journeys are part of the destination. Life doesn't begin only when I reach and I fulfill all my desires, but every moment, even struggling moments, are part of my journey and therefore they have meaning, they have purpose. This is, I think, a Jewish way of looking at life. It's a spiritual way of looking at life. And it's a wholesome way of looking at life. It makes life far more meaningful. And it's based on the idea that God is involved in our lives every moment. Which now brings me to the next point. And here we get into the saga of relationships themselves. Finding, searching, knowing it's the right one, disappointments, delusions, cynicism, fear, and so on and so forth. So I now come to point number three. I addressed this a few times over Shabbos, not so elaborately, but I think at this convention, at this gathering, it's important to address. And for those who heard it Friday night or by Shalashudas, you'll indulge me, because I think about this every day. I think these are the foundations of living. In life, we have to be able to be fresh. What do I mean fresh? Fresh, in Hebrew, it's called tari. This fresh milk and the sour milk. That means I go into a situation completely open to all the possibilities of it. But in order to be open to all the possibilities of it, I have to be cleansed from the burdens that I'm carrying on me. And let me explain myself in psychological terms. Most of us, I should say many of us, I'm not excluded from this, most people walk around life carrying a story that we have been telling ourselves about ourselves from childhood. Maybe from age two, maybe from age four, maybe from age nine. And sometimes, if you're really lucky, really dysfunctional family from the womb. What's the story that we are telling ourselves? Everybody has a different story. But it may be you with this four-year-old child or three-year-old, innocent, pure, adventurous, creative, meshuga, wild. And you saw a beer wall in your house and you said, ah, this is a lovely wall for me to create art. And you take the magic markers that are, of course, not removable, and you draw three elephants, the sun, the moon, the clouds, the rain, nine birds, and then you hear footsteps. And you think your mother is going to come and marvel at the masterpiece that you have just created at the beer wall, 
and she'll marvel because at this age, at three, you don't even know there's something you can do wrong. You don't even know there's something called wrong. You don't know that the world can be wrong. But instead of hearing a compliment about what an artist and great kid you are, for the first time in your life, you learn that you could do something wrong. And that you are wrong. And for the first time in your life, suddenly you opened up to a new reality. And what you may have here at that what you may hear at that point is not, you know, drawing pictures on a wall that was just painted for three thousand dollars is not the best financial advice. But what you may hear is I am a mistake. I'm stupid. I'm not good. And if I hear that once, and then I think I hear it again, and then a fourth time and a fifth time, that becomes a CD that plays over and over, like a scratched CD that plays again and again and again in my brain. And from that day, I may say to myself, how can I straighten myself out to be able to come back home and get my mother's compliments? What do I have to be that's not wrong? And for the rest of my life, I may be trying to be that person that will be welcome in my mother's bosom. It could be from something I heard as a young child or somebody not responding to my pain. I came to the following conclusion. I am alone. I can't trust anybody. Because when I once said what I felt like when I was six years old, I was reprimanded or I wasn't believed. And my conclusion is, I am one alone in this world. I can't trust anybody. And that plays in my brain again and again and again. I'm alone. Or it could be I came home with a 90 and daddy told me, why not a 100? And what I heard was, I'm never good enough. Or mother came in, why is your room always messy? And what I heard was, I am messy. I am a mess. I told you to take out the garbage. And what I heard was, I am garbage. And that stays with me. Now, I walk around life as an adult. I'm 20, I'm 30, I'm 40, I'm 50, I'm 60. But that's what I hear constantly from within me. And then there are things that trigger it. So when somebody criticizes me, even if it's constructive criticism, I can't listen to the criticism. Why? Because it's triggering my story. I'm not good. So now I'm on a date. And somebody may make a comment to me. And I freak out emotionally. I have to detach. Because I tell myself, I knew I'm alone. I knew I can't trust him. I know I can't trust anybody. I know I'm, and he also thinks I'm a failure. And he also thinks I'm ugly. And he also thinks I'm horrible. And again, I retreat into my loneliness. I retreat into my loneliness because everything in life triggers that internal story that I have been telling myself, I'm not good enough. I can't trust anybody. I'll never please the world. And how many times do my encounters trigger that emotion in me and I'm responding from that place. I can't even be present in a relationship because I am trapped in old paradigms that keep on defining all my conversations and all my relationships. 
And trust me, this is not only with singles, this is quite true with couples. A wife may tell her husband, you forgot to close the door. Close the door. Or I asked you to buy wine for Shabbos. You forgot. What he may hear is not, you forgot to buy wine for Shabbos. What he may hear is, you always forget everything. You, you're an irresponsible person. You can't be trusted. You're a loser. Because that's what he's been. That's the story in his mind, and he always had to protect himself from that story. And now she says it too, so he's upset. To be in a relationship, I have to change the disc. I have to be able to tell myself every morning when I wake up, I'm good. I'm fine. My soul is divine and therefore it's pure, it's sacred, it's flawless, it's impeccable, it's part of Hashem. That is me. And therefore, I don't need you or you or you to validate the value of my existence. I don't need your approval to believe that my life matters. My life matters essentially. My value is non-negotiable. It's absolute. It's unequivocal. It does not depend on circumstances. So it's not like when I go out, if you tell me to be nice, now I feel good. You criticize me, now I'm in the dumps. You tell me something nice, I'm back up. You tell me something harsh, I'm back in the dumps. And my well-being is subjected continuously to outer circumstances. I had a great conversation with my mother, I'm up. My mother told me something again, and oh, whoa, I'm in a depression again. <laughs> my sister told me she really freaked me out, she's a narcissist again, I'm in the dumps. I went out on a date, he seemed cute and nice and charming, I'm good again. He says, it's not for me, I'm in the dumps. What's often happening is that I'm not responding to what happened. What happened is a trigger of my old story, of me telling myself again, I don't matter, I'm not good enough, I'm lonely, I could never get it right, I'm insignificant. Imagine I can show up to life with well-being. Show up to a date Show up to a relationship. Show up to all of life with well-being. With a core that is solid. That is powerful. That is rooted in the Creator who loves you unconditionally the way you are. And therefore you must love yourself unconditionally the way you are. And now I can actually listen to you. Now if you criticize me. What I hear is not, I'm nothing, I don't matter. What I hear is that you're criticizing me. You may be right, you may be wrong. My mother is having a bad day. Okay. I can maybe even be here for her. My sister tells me something. Okay. She may be wrong. She may be right. Maybe she should apologize. But I'm not in the abyss. The ability to be present to the reality of life rather than looking at life with tainted glasses and all I can see is gray. I don't see anything else but gray. You could tell me you're wearing yellow. I don't see it. I see gray. 
Everywhere I see my inadequacy, constantly. Unless everybody is always complimenting me. If not, everything is gray. I can't even deal with the reality of the situation because I'm always finding myself in every situation. The Kotsky Rebbe said, if I am I because you are you and you are you because I am I, I am not I and you are not you. But if I am I because I, I am I and you are you because you are you, then I am I and you are you. Got it? If my whole I is always a response to you, then I am not I. I have to show up from I. This is me. It's f- I'm fine. I'm good. Why am I good? Because God created me to be me, and He created you to be you, and that's good. And you don't need anybody's validation for your existence. The soul has infinite value. Now, show up. So my comment to you, or my response to you, doesn't freak you out. It doesn't get you into this bubble where you keep on telling yourself how bad you are, how not good you are. Which brings me to the next point. Searching for a relationship. Relationships have excitement to them and they have pain to them. What often happens is in the rejection that we have felt throughout the years we often reject ourselves in the process. And this becomes one of the greatest triggers, I'm not good enough. I'm destined to be lonely. I often hear from people, I'm destined to be lonely. I can't really be with people. I can't really trust anybody. What often happens, I may have been rejected at some point in my life, and what I told myself since in an unconscious way is, I will always be rejected because I'm just not good enough. The way it may translate itself consciously is not I'm not good enough, but nobody is good enough. Everybody I meet is an idiot. Everybody I meet is a moron. But often, aggression is another symptom of my terrible insecurity. Because if I don't have a place where I feel confident, then everyone is competing for my potential space and I have to cut down others in order to feel my value. So whenever you find yourself in a place of judgment, I'm judging you. This guy is really no good. She's really not good. And I find myself obsessed with putting you down in my mind or verbally. It's because I'm desperately looking for my own identity and by putting you down, I somehow feel that I will bear my footing. Therefore, I have to be aggressive because there's a threat. But when you are really comfortable in your own skin, you don't have to judge other people. You are you and I am I. 
I may respond to you in a certain way, in a way of what's integrity to me, but I don't have to put you down to feel up. And I don't put myself down. If you find yourself putting yourself down or putting other people down, obsessed with judging them or judging yourself, it means I'm coming not from a place of well-being. I'm coming from my story that's restricting me. This is my exile. I'm now in Mitzrayim. I'm in Egypt. I'm in an exile, and that's where I'm living from. I have to redeem myself and live from a larger place. Then I don't have to judge you. I don't have to judge myself. This doesn't mean I can't learn from my mistakes, but I don't say I am a mistake. And when I am rejected, it doesn't mean I'm bad. It just means for this person, it won't work out. That's it. It means not I'm worthless. I'm bad. I'm insignificant. God hates me. The world hates me. Everybody hates me. I'm a nobody. We not, don't go there. The thoughts are there. I want you to do the following illustration, and this is a good meditation in the morning, in the middle of the day, at night, especially when you're having a difficult day. Imagine I'm from New York, so this is a very vivid and graphic illustration. I know in Palm Beach things are different. <laughs> I am the blue sky. That's what I am. A blue, sparkling, beautiful sky. But there are clouds that come by under the sky. And sometimes the clouds are dark and the clouds are black. And that's fine. And I let them pass. But woe unto me if I start defining myself as the black clouds rather than the blue sky. So if you find yourself in the middle of the day and these thoughts are rushing in your brain, compulsive thoughts of self-denigration, of self-judgment, of judgment to others, which is really depression. Depression means thoughts of negative judgment about yourself. Stop, breathe, and just let the black clouds go. You don't have to fight the clouds. But remember, I'm the blue sky. My soul is godly. God loves me unconditionally. My eye is not damaged. My eye is as perfect and beautiful as they come. The thoughts are the black clouds. They're fine. I have black clouds, let them pass. They may come back in an hour again. Welcome them politely and say, thank you for joining me. I know you're going to be here and now you could pass Gesundheit hate slowly and tranquilly and let the blue sky remain blue. Never lose distinction between your essential I and the black clouds that may drive you mad in the middle of the day and the middle of the night. And then, when you try to enter into a relationship, enter from a place of blue sky, not of black clouds. Be fully present because you're not afraid to be hurt. And the reason you're not afraid to be hurt is because you're strong. But often we're afraid to be let down again so we don't show up. I'm not honest. I'm not vulnerable. I'm not present. I don't want to get another punch. Listen, if I'm a weakling and somebody comes and gives me a punch, I fall down on the ground, humiliated. So of course I'm not going to show up. I don't want another punch. But if I'm strong, I'm confident, I'm fine. So somebody comes and gives me a punch. Okay, it hurts, but I'm not destroyed. The same is true emotionally. If I feel I'm nothing, I'm so weak, I can't show up in a relationship because what happens if I get rejected again? I'm dead. Show up with your full self because your full self's value is non-negotiable. It's very strong. It's very confident. And you know what? If you get a punch, you're fine. Yeah, 
it's not fun to get black and blue. But it won't kill you, it won't humiliate you. Come with a blue sky, not with black clouds. This is not about arrogance. It's on the contrary. It's about inner confidence which allows you to be humble. And here is something to the men. A relationship requires vulnerability. Vulnerability requires the ability to admit fault. The ability to admit fault and take responsibility comes from an inner unshakable confidence which allows me to say I'm wrong without thinking that I am a mistake. What often happens is if I think I'm a mistake, I could never say I'm wrong. Because if I say I'm wrong, you might also think I'm a mistake. But if I know I'm not a mistake, what's the big deal to be vulnerable? I make mistakes. I'm human. I could celebrate my weakness when I know my strength. If I only know my weakness, I go crazy for my weakness. If I know my strengths, I can enjoy my weakness. It's part of who I am. And in a relationship, I have to be able to be open on that level. Which brings me now to the next point, my dear brothers and sisters. Often people tell me, I hope to find the perfect guy. Can I find the perfect woman? I wish God could just allow me to meet the perfect shidduch. And then everything will work out. I hope so too. I hope so too. But there's no such a thing. There's no such a thing. I should say no such In most cases, there's no such a thing. There's no man that is perfect, trust me. Even for you. And I don't know how to say there's no perfect woman. But, uh, you know, relatively speaking... Everybody has flaws. Everybody has flaws. There's no relationship without compromise. I can't find a perfect man or a perfect woman. What I could do is, I could, I could try to make the relationship, I could try to make the relationship as powerful and as wholesome as I can and I can be perfectly committed to the relationship and that will make it a great relationship what do I mean what I mean is this my computer dies I need a new computer I go into the store and I buy a new computer but I look for a good model I want a good model, I want a cheap model, I want a fast model, I want it to be lightweight, of course. Will I find in the store the perfect, swift, light computer for the exact price I want? Of course not. But yet, I find something that works, and I go home with a computer. You know why? Very simple. I know I need a computer. <laughs> so therefore, I'm determined to find a computer and I find something I'm looking for. Is it the perfect model? No. And I go home with it because when I come into the store, I'm committed to have a computer. I know I'm not going home without a computer. And therefore, I find a computer. But what if I go into the store, 50% I need a computer and 50% I don't need a computer. 
will I ever find a perfect model? No, there's no such a thing as a perfect model. But when I know I'm coming out with a computer, a perfect model I won't find, but a workable model, of course I'll find. Only because I walked in with 100% conviction, I'm not leaving without a computer because I desperately need a computer. If I enter into the search for a shidduch with the notion, maybe I want to get married, maybe I don't, maybe I should, maybe I should not. Maybe my soul needs this, maybe my soul doesn't need this. 40 years it didn't happen, won't happen another 40 years. 50 years it didn't happen, won't happen another 50 years. Look at my parents fought all their life. If God wanted me to get married, why did he send me? If my mother wanted, if my mother wanted. But you know what? I'll go on the date. And if he's perfect, I'll marry him. <laughs> he's not perfect, of course not. Which guy is perfect? She's not perfect, of course not. Which human being is perfect? Besides my mother-in-law. <laughs> my mother, my wife, three women. Of course not. However, if I am really committed to the idea of marriage, but not committed in theory, not 50% if I find, this is what I want. But it's not just what I want in theory. This is where my life is going. It's a conviction. It's a commitment. It's a decision. You'll find. You know why? Because if you say, I am getting married. I am getting married. I'll find a computer. Is it perfect? No. But I'm going to make it perfect for me. Now, of course, I can't buy a schmata. I can't buy any schmatt and say I'm going to make it work. <laughs> I'll change the hard drive. I'll change the chip. I'll change the software. I'll give it to a technician for 10 years. Equivalent to therapy. Of course you've got to buy a good computer. You want to make sure the computer has what you need. You want to make sure the computer is half mensch. You want to make sure the computer is suitable. You want to make sure the computer is not going to deplete you from everything you own in your life. You want to make sure the computer has fine values. You want to make sure the computer has a value system and an identity that's dear to you. But will the computer be perfect? No. I'm going to make my commitment to the relationship perfect. And then everything changes. This happens every day when you go buy a car. My car broke down, I need a new car. I know I'm not leaving the place without a car. Maybe I'll go to another place or two places, but I'm going to get a car. The perfect situation, no, but I'm going to get a car. This is a different attitude. And therefore you have to ask yourself this question. How deeply are you committed to the idea of really getting married? Is it a theory? Is it a nice thing to do? Is it if God gets me the perfect guy, I'll do it, or the perfect woman, I'll do it? Or it's actually from within. I'm really, really committed to this. This is non-negotiable. I'm coming home with a computer. Yes, it may not happen the first date, it may not happen the second date, I may have to search, I may have to work, but it's coming in with a different attitude, which includes another point, and that is, 
There's no relationship without compromise. There's no such a thing that I remain stuck up in my paradigms and I'm not ready to budge. And I'll be frank with you. It's important for the women, even more for the men. I, was, I grew up in a Hasidic group, but Chabad gets married a little later. But in other Hasidic groups, they get married like really early. You know what I'm talking about? 18, 19, the girls are 17. And it is a little strange. You know what I mean? But there's another side to it. You know, when people get married when they're babies, they're not yet stuck up in their ways of life. And they grow up together in many cases. I'm not saying every marriage is rosy, but in many ways they learn to grow up together. But when I'm already older, I'm entrenched in my ways and my patterns and my paradigms, how I live. And now every change, I freak out. I can't deal with it. We have to be able to develop a flexibility, an openness, a realization that I am I, but you must not be me. You are you and I am I. There's a lovely t-shirt. I'm very easy to get along with once you learn to worship me. <laughs> right? But you don't want that relationship. You don't, and I have to be able to be flexible. And I don't mean flexible verbally. It's easy to be flexible verbally. I mean flexible emotionally. Flexible emotionally means when I see the idiosyncrasies of the person I'm dating, I don't run away. And I don't feel I have to crush them. What often happens is when I see the idiosyncrasies of other people, either I run, I'm like, I'm not going to be with this person, or I feel like I have to dominate. It's fine. Again, come from a place of well-being. You're the blue sky. You're good. Now this person, these are their habits. These are their mishagasin. you got your mishagasin. Trust me. I don't mean you. Whoever, we all, I have my Meshagasin. I have my shtick. That's part of it. You know what I mean? There's couples that argue for the rest of their life. Is the light on at night or off at night? Right? Should the window be open? Should the window be closed? These are small stuff, but often in relationships, even in dates, people go crazy. It's about an emotional flexibility when you know who you are, you could let other people be who they are without the need to run, without the need to crush. This brings me to another point. And the other point is, why should I even want to get married? <laughs> I know why I need a computer. <laughs> I know why I need a car. But why in the world do I need a spouse? Really? I mean, it used to be before the 1960s, certain things you couldn't do without marriage. Those days are over. Romance, friendship, camaraderie. Today, even children, you know, to get married. You can even get a tax discount today. Supreme Court might soon introduce the concept of getting married to yourself. <laughs> Especially if you have a split personality. <laughs> Why? Why? Because my mother wants, my grandmother wants. You know Jackie Mason? He repeats some of my jokes. So <laughs> He's a bachelor. He's an Alta Bacher. 
So I once asked him, I said, Jack, his name is Rabbi Yaakov, Yaakov Maza. That's his real name. I said, Rabbi Yaakov, we had a conversation. I said, tell me, you ever regret not getting married? He says, no. My father used to say marriage is an institution. I don't want to be institutionalized. (laughs) And today, many people are really opting for the choice of not getting married because... You know, I come from New York, 50% of first marriages stand to end up in divorce. Those are staggering numbers. That's every other wedding you attend. 63% of second marriages. And even if these statistics are somewhat exaggerated and the numbers are lower, they're still quite high and dramatic. So the question is why? I'm lonely, I'm bored, okay. Get together with friends. <laughs> romance, as somebody once told me, romance is much better without marriage. Once you get married, it's very hard to remain romantic. Here, it's leisure, it's on your terms. And the real truth is that if marriage was simply about the fact that certain needs I have could get met only through marriage, probably not getting married is equally valid as getting married because a lot of those needs you can get met very, very well without marriage and sometimes even easier and better without the headaches of putting up with another shlamil and another shlamazel and another nudnik and another guy who's driving you mad. There's plenty of people you can go out with, you can meet, you could be successful. But there's something else, and that is coming back to the source of all. God, before he created the world, was a perfect bachelor. He was tall, handsome, slim, very wealthy, owned a home in Palm Beach, <laughs> owned a penthouse in Manhattan, a home in the Riviera, southern France, and in Switzerland. Yeah, that's what they say about him. I read in his resume. (laughs) He exercised every day, even owned his own yacht, his private jet. Mamish, a perfect bachelor. The only thing God was missing was a wife. As perfect as you are as a bachelor, you're missing marriage, because you can't get married to yourself, at least not yet. God created us because he wanted a marriage. He wanted a relationship. And a relationship means a relationship with someone outside of you. There's one problem. God is infinite, so there's nothing outside of him. Because infinity excludes anything else. So the Kabbalah says God had to create a tzimtzum. Tzimtzum, T-Z-I-M, T-Z-U-M, is not a Chinese dish. It's a Kabbalistic concept, which means self-withdrawal. God had to withdraw himself, create a vacuum, an open space where humanity can emerge as an autonomous existence and we can choose a relationship because he wanted to get married. Why did he need it? He needed because as a perfect bachelor he couldn't give. He was perfect. There was nobody to give to. There was no need to give to. Nor can he get. So he created this symptom. He limited himself, so to speak. Created an openness for otherness 
to which he can give and which he can receive from. So the secret of creation is really about a perfect bachelor wanting to be in a relationship with otherness. Because that allows him the ability to give, to share, to love. From a Jewish perspective, what marriage does is it allows, it puts me in a position where I am constantly in a relationship with somebody else where my thoughts, words, and actions impact them and where their thoughts, words, and actions impact me. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Even when I'm far away, I may be 30,000 miles away from my spouse, we're still connected. What I do impacts her, what she does impacts me. Without marriage, I may have good friends, I may have great friends, I may be involved in good things, and that's awesome, and it's wonderful, and I may find a lot of fulfillment. But to be in a perpetual relationship constantly, where I'm giving, and as a result receiving, in the structure of life, that is what a marriage really brings out. It has its challenges, because when I'm in a relationship, I'm constantly affecting somebody else, and I'm allowing somebody else to affect me. It's very vulnerable. It's risky. It's dangerous. I can't run away in isolation. When I'm single, I run into isolation. I can afford to be depressed for three and a half weeks. I don't have to show up. In a marriage, I have to show up. And yet, when I choose not, I'm not allowing myself to replicate the image of my Creator. We become most divine when we replicate God. God was a perfect bachelor, or bacheloress, if you want. And he, did I just make up a word? Okay, that's fine. That's fine. And he chose to be in a relationship because he wanted to give. So I, we have to ask ourselves this question. What do we really feel? How passionate, how committed am I to that concept? I could choose a different path, and that's fine. Everyone makes their own choice. But in life, if I can have the courage and the blessings to be able to enter into a relationship which we call marriage, then I can most reflect the Creator in the sense that 24 hours a day I'm now in a relationship of give and of course the other person as well. So it's really give and take. And there's no relationship that challenges one to become that giver as in marriage. So if I'm getting married just because I want somebody to satisfy certain needs of mine, it's not really going to work. Because as much as they satisfy my needs, they're going to challenge me equally and probably much more. Especially when I'm a little older. It challenges your comfort zones. It takes you out of your comfort zones. It can make them a sugar. So that's where I'm going into the first floor I'm going to see. It's like, you know what? Leave me alone. Leave me alone. In Talmud, the tractate for divorce precedes the tractate for marriage. The comes before Kiddushin. Somebody asked me why. I said two reasons. First of all, the Talmudic sages were prophets, and they were talking about Hollywood. And in Hollywood, before the wedding is over, they're already divorced. 
They just got married at 6 o'clock, and then that night on the tabloids, we see the divorce, 28 million settlement, 28 for her, 28 for him. There's a deeper reason, and that is I have to get divorced from being married to myself in order to marry somebody else. And that's not easy. If I'm just marrying you, or you or you, or somebody, to get my needs met, to get my comforts met, it's not going to work. Because even if a lot of needs get met and there's fun and enjoyment, there's sacrifices I have to make. And there's things that I'm going to have to give up. I'm going to say, what do I need this for? Bye-bye, love. Bye-bye, happiness. Hello, loneliness. Maybe I won't get all my, Simon and Garfunkel, maybe I won't get all my needs met, but at least I won't get all my needs challenged. My attitude has to be very different. I'm going into marriage because I want to be like Hashem. Hashem was perfect. He didn't need anything. He wanted to give. And He wanted to give to the other. Because in that giving, I become godlike. And when I become godlike, I touch my soul. And when I touch my soul, I can live fully. Now when I see a flaw, now when I see a challenge, I say, you know what? This is an opportunity to give more. And it changes the patterns of thinking. When you see a flaw, you could say two things. It's time to run. Or, (laughs) I thought it was a BMW, I ended up with a Buick. Or, wow, this is a real opportunity to be here for someone. To give. It's a different paradigm. It's a different perspective. You can only go to that perspective if you come from a place of confidence. The blue sky. If you come from a place of wounds, if I'm wounded, I can't really give. Because I'm always looking for band-aids. I'm looking for Tylenol. I'm looking for you to cover my wounds. That's what codependence is. I need you for me to be. And then I can't really give. I can't show up. You have to come from the blue sky. When you come from the blue sky, you can give. When you see a flaw, you can say this is an opportunity to give. So, my dear friends, in conclusion, in conclusion, I want to share an insight that sums it up. When God says, God says, Adam knew Eve and they had children. From knowing somebody, you don't have kids. If I would have kids from everybody I know, it wouldn't look so pretty. Of course, when the Bible says Adam knew Eve, it means he had intimacy. Because intimacy is about knowing somebody. Because intimacy is into me see. It's about allowing yourself to really know somebody. And allowing yourself to unite with that person, not just physically, but also emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually. When the Bible wants to describe Isaac's intimacy with Rebecca, the Bible says, Isaac was jesting with Rebecca, his wife. Jesting is a euphemism for sexuality. Why? Because intimacy requires humor. You have to laugh at your differences. You have to laugh at your idiosyncrasies. You can't take yourself too seriously. 
Not in an abusive sense. When you're confident, you don't have to take yourself so seriously. You could laugh at yourself because it does not spell self-destruction. When I, I hate myself, I could never laugh at myself. A relationship requires humor. You have to be able to laugh at idiosyncrasies. You have to be able to laugh at differences. So there's knowing the other person, Adam knew Eve. And finally, when God says it's not good for man to be alone, he says, Eselo Ezer Kenegdoi. I'm going to create for him a helper against him. And that's Eve. Well, is Eve a helper or is Eve against him? Do you want a wife to be a helper or to be against you? And the answer is, sometimes the greatest help your spouse gives you is by being against you. Because every man needs somebody to save him from his own immaturity and his own ego. So Eve is my helper by being against me. The worst thing you can do is have a wife who agrees with you. Which is why intermarriage is not good for the Jewish people. You didn't get that. Okay. <laughs> of course, you'll marry a Japanese girl. She'll agree with you. It's not good for you. You marry a Jewish tzatzka. She'll never agree with you. <laughs> also not good for you. It's not a mitzvah to disagree with your spouse. Right? But it's a necessity sometimes. At least that's what Jewish women think. But the point is, <laughs> in life we need somebody to remind us that we're human. That we're vulnerable. That we make mistakes. And a relationship is a wonderful opportunity for that. If you can trust each other. If you could trust each other on a vulnerable level. If I could strip myself from all my layers and facades and be vulnerable and allow another person into my vulnerability. Then when that person reminds me that I'm human, I celebrate it. Because it makes me bigger, it doesn't make me smaller. These are some of the points I want to share with you, my dear friends. And before we open the floor to questions and objections, and your own feelings and feel free to share whatever you want you don't have to agree with anything I said it's completely fine I want to bless you that God should fulfill all of your heart's desires and lead you in the right path to be able to find what you're capable of finding with good spirits from a place of well-being from a place of freedom, liberation <coughs> stress-free wholesomeness and from a place where you can always show up in life looking at yourself as the blue sky. Thank you very much. Okay, who's going to ask the first question? Feel free. It's probably going to be a woman because the men need some warming up. I'm wrong. I'm sorry. Go ahead. A little louder. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Excellent question. That was a pretty optimistic way of describing your question. To what do I attribute 50% divorce and 50%, the other 50% not so happy? Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you. 50% divorce, in my mind, is not surprising. I'll tell you why. It's natural. When you have people getting married... 50% of the time it works out, 50% of the time it doesn't work out because people are so different from each other. 
So the fact that there is contention is normal. If I'm with the same person under the same roof for years, there's going to be contention. In 50% of the cases, the people have a nature in which they're more flexible or easygoing or soft or loving or romantic, so it works. And in 50% of the cases, it doesn't work. I think that's very natural. The reason for that is because a marriage cannot work successfully if there is no value system that considers marriage sacred. If you don't have a value system that considers marriage sacred, it naturally will fall apart of this contention. But what if my wife and I consider marriage to be sacred? We consider it to be of the highest value in life. Then, even if we have contention, we'll do everything we can to work it out. So that's extremely important. In most of the world, the institution of marriage is not considered the highest value in life. It's considered a nice thing, a cute thing, a charming thing. It's like vacation. It works good. It doesn't work back to life. You get what I'm saying? It's a different attitude. This is a gift of Torah. Torah sees it as an absolutely sacred value worth sacrificing for. And it needs sacrifice. Every marriage has contention. The question is, are you ready to work it through? Depends how valuable it is. It used to be in ancient society. It's not just feminism that changed it. In ancient society, most couples believe, Jews and non-Jews, that marriage is of the highest value in life. Children are of the highest value in life. Keeping the family together is the highest value in life. You think our grandparents didn't have issues. They worked it through. They had a choice. Today, we have a new society that says the highest value, there's no value in life. You create your own value based on your subjective emotion. So if my spouse is a little difficult in my perception, why should I work it through? I change my suit, I change my job, I change my apartment, I change my life. Yes? And, so why is it in Israel, the Jewish state, there's, there's a high rate of divorce as well? Of course. The Jewish state is not based on Torah values. The Jewish state is a secular democracy. Most, unfortunately, most Jews growing up in Israel were not inculcated with the values of Yiddishkeit. We love them. They're great people. They're under a lot of pressure. Don't, don't see this as a judgment, God forbid. But they were, not edu- they were educated in public schools with almost no vestige of Judaism. You know how many Israelis find Judaism when they go to the Far East and they end up in Chabad houses? <laughs> Hundreds of thousands. Literally, I mean, I've been there. Japan, Thailand, India. These Israelis are coming every day. In Israel, they never walked into a shul. They're in Thailand, in Bangkok, they come to Chabad. Hey, wow, Judaism is not so evil. You know, it's a very, it's a, it's a tragedy what happened in Israel. And it's not just the secular fault, it's the religious fault. The split between the secular and the religious in Israel is very tragic. So Israeli society needs a lot of mending. Now don't think in religious societies all the marriages are rosy. I know Borough Park, I know Crown Heights, I know Miami Beach. They got their own challenges, they got their own struggles. But there's no question that the rate of divorce there is probably 8% instead of 50%. Now I know people always say because there's no feminism there and the women are afraid to get divorced, they don't have job security, they never went to college, this pressure of the community. I got that, and I'm sure part of that is true. But any objective analysis 
would explain to you that that doesn't account for the disparity between 50% and 8%. If the divorce in religious communities was 30%, I would say, okay, it's because of social pressure. The reason it's so much lower is not that it's problem-free. It's because the values of Torah, Torah are much more conducive, that if a couple wants to work on their marriage, it's easier. For example, the idea of Shabbat is a lovely institution for a marriage. You know what I mean? You know one night the guy is not texting. You know how wonderful that is? The guy is not texting. This institution of mikveh. You know, the values of Torah are just conducive for a better marriage if the couple is ready to work on themselves. This doesn't mean there's no orthodox abusers. Trust me. Yes. Yes, go ahead. A little louder. Second society has become what? is that secular society has destroyed that absolute value that was once attributed to marriage and children. It does not t- teach that to its children anymore. What does it teach its children? What replaced that in secular society? Dogs. What else? Dogs, computers, but I would say something a little more general, and that is the notion became, you're on your own, define your life for whatever makes you feel good and whatever is meaningful to you. And if marriage works for you, we support you. But it's not a value that we could speak about as being objectively valuable, because generally we live in an age of moral relativism, which means there's no truth. You decide what is true for you, and I decide what is true for me, and I can't be a judge on your values. And that includes even who says marriage is important. To you, to your grandmother, it may be important. You know, career, money, self-actualization in one way or another way. And uh, because marriage is challenging, and because raising children is challenging, that's the first value that was dropped. Because whenever you give the choice and say, you know, you could do whatever you want, the first thing that will go are things that require sacrifice. (laughs) And that requires sacrifice. And if it's not a, a value up here, why should I sacrifice for it when there are other choices? And I think many people later in their life, especially when they become older, and I've heard from many, they regret choices that they made. And they say, we were indoctrinated. Which Jewish feminist said, women need men like fish need bicycles? Gloria Steinem, right? Women need men like fish need bicycles. You know, at its time it was like, wow, a messianic statement. How beautiful, how liberating. Women need men enough. Men, nudniks, creeps, women don't need men, fish don't need bicycles. I'm not judging her. She probably had good intentions, you know. But, but I, I, it's not my position. I don't know her. My point is, 
she did not realize that she deprived a generation of people knowing that there's a tremendous sense of fulfillment that comes from that. And suddenly it was taken away from them. And they discover it often late. You know, and it, it, I cry about that. It's very painful to see. So that value, yes, has been deleted. Yes, I'm going to take the next question. We'll take another few questions. Before I did, I just had a thought. I just want to, I want to share it for those who want. Two things. Number one, I send out a weekly essay, a public email, on Jewish psychology and spirituality, often about relationships. So if anybody wants to receive it, you could give me your email address, and I'm happy to send you this weekly essay on Jewish perspectives on psychology, relationships, and so forth. You can just give me your email. Number two, it happens to be, and I just thought of this before, I'm traveling this week to the Ukraine. I'm going to be at the resting place of the Balshamtov in Mezhebush in Ukraine. The Balshamtov was known as one of the most extraordinary, greatest leaders in Jewish history, a man who revealed the Hasidic movement, and a person who was not bound so much by nature. If anybody wishes, you could write down on a piece of paper your name and your mother's name and anything you want. It should be yours. I'm not going to read it. You could write whatever you want, a letter, requests, blessings, for whatever your heart desires, you, your loved ones. If you want, you can give it to me tonight. And when I go to Measure Bush this week, I'm going to be there, God willing, Thursday morning. Um, I could leave it at the resting place of the Balshamtiv. Or if you want, in Hadich, at the resting place of the Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Shneir Zaman of Liadi, the author of the Tanya, the founder of Chabad. It's your choice. Thursday I'm in Mezhebush. Friday I'm in Amvir. And, uh, and I'm also in Bardichev, by Rabbi Yitzchak of Bardichev. You choose your tzaddik. It's not my business. And if you want to write something private, whatever it is, you can give it. That's what I just want to tell. Before I take the next question, if you want, you can give me your email to get an essay. If you want, you can give me another paper. You don't have to send the Balsham to your email. But uh, <laughs> you want, you could. Again, I don't, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not in that place. I don't know what he'll answer, how he'll answer, but your name and your mother's name. If you wish, feel free to do that. Yes, go ahead. You mean to you it's a contradiction? That's what you mean. She's asking a contradiction. The beginning of the lecture I said, God put me where I am and I have to find meaning. At the end of the lecture I'm saying, secular society created values. We embraced them. We were brainwashed by them. We followed them. And now we're reaping the results. It's a lovely question. 
it really gets into the big question of do we have free choice? How much free choice we have? How much is God involved in our life? How much do we define our life? If I made a terrible mistake 20 years ago, who did it? Me or God? Is my mother guilty? Is my father guilty? Who's really guilty? This is a mysterious question. I don't think it's an easy question to answer. What I would say is, I think a lot of life is a partnership. And what I mean by a partnership is, there's no question that we are responsible for our actions. But there's no question that God is at least an equal partner who shares some of the responsibility. Because, of course, I made choices. But ultimately, I made those choices maybe because of certain circumstances in my life, right? So the fact that I grew up with secular values, who decided that? Me? Or maybe God? So even if I must take responsibility and not become a victim, but I have to bring God into the process because he at least has a part, he's a partner in our experiences. So I think that what that really means is that in every situation there's two dimensions. One is what can I learn from it for the future? And on the other hand, say, and say, you know, if I made a mistake, I made a mistake and I'm ready to fix it for the future. On the other hand, the fact that I made the mistake is ultimately because God allowed me to make the mistake. And that means there's something for me to learn from the mistake. There's a way for me to grow from the mistake. There's light in the mistake. Light as in light. I can transform it. There's meaning. There's purpose. I shouldn't just sit and say, I made a mistake. I am a mistake. I'm destroyed. My life is destroyed. I'm stupid. I'm hopeless. Because God shears in the responsibility. On the other hand, I shouldn't just say, God, 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 there's nothing I can learn from it. Let me go become a couch potato and let God run my life. You know, that's what Judaism is about, that sheared partnership that we have with God to mend the world. And, you know, there's his part and there's our part. We ask him to play his part best that he can, and we need to play our part best we can. I think... That's a sane approach that encompasses a lot of wisdom from a Jewish perspective, even if it doesn't answer all the questions. You get what I'm saying? Yes, anybody else, feel free. Nobody disagrees with anything. Are you all Jewish? Okay, the good news is you don't have to convert. Yes, go. Okay, if somebody was in a very difficult marriage, he's saying, it was painful, it may have been abusive, it may have been tiring, it may have been excruciatingly difficult, and you got out of it. You got out of it through a divorce or whatever happened, and the marriage was terminated. Where do we go forward? Listen. You know, I spoke earlier on Shabbos. Pain is very real and pain is very raw and in the presence of pain one has to be very humble when somebody has been in a marriage that has been so painful 
and so abusive. All I can say is, I stand in humility in your presence. And I bless and I hope that despite the painful past, you can reach a space in which you don't allow the pain to define your essence. In which you're not always responding to the pain and not allowing that abuse to infiltrate and pollute you at your core. You don't you don't you deserve better in other words you owe it to yourself to let go of your pain not to forget it but to let go in the sense not to allow the pain to destroy your essence to say the black clouds may have been very very dense but there's still a blue sky above it and i want to be able to choose from that space uh, billy joel has a song an innocent man you know that one the innocent man I want to still be able to retain my childlike innocence and freshness despite what I have seen in my life. I don't want to retreat to cynicism and endless fear because of that. Is it easy? No. Can I judge somebody that can't escape it? No. But what I could do is pray for us. Pray for you. Pray with you that we should be able to we should be able not to ignore our pain, but to transcend our pain. The greatest model for this in history is Joseph. Joseph, in Genesis, endured a very tumultuous and painful life, caused by his own family, thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, ended up in prison. And when he meets his brothers, finally, and says, I'm Joseph, they're terrified he's going to take revenge. And he says, you did not sell me. God sent me here to save the world from hunger. And in many ways, what that teaches us is that I have to look at my past circumstances and say, ultimately, ultimately, I'm not a victim of anybody or anything. God sent me into the places I am and the places I were and it gives me the power to be able to create light from my darkness and to be able to create life from my situation and to be able to bring plenty into a place of famine. So, you know, I can't tell somebody to do that. All I can do is pray with them, pray for them, you know, for that place. Your second question, if somebody was never blessed with a relationship with a marriage, what can they do to look forward what I would say is I would say three things first of all not to give up on yourself and on your life and ever say I wake up in the morning to a meaningless life that's not fair to you it's not true God is creating you today anew there is meaning today in your life you may be on a journey but all of life is a journey our journeys are meaningful Make today a meaningful day. Don't just say when, when, and if my life will start having meaning. Today, I'm going to choose to make it a wholesome day, to make it a deep day, to make it a real day, to make it a good day, to make it a day. We are here on a mission to be ambassadors for light, love, and hope. What am I going to do today to be an ambassador for God, for love, light and hope that's number one number two 
get accustomed to prayer. Build a relationship with God. Pray. Pray for what you need. Pray for what you want. Tell God what's up. Ask Him to be with you. It's very effective. Prayer is very, very powerful. And three, open yourself up to the opportunity to find a relationship. Open yourself up. Don't come from a place of resentment and cynicism. Cynicism is a form of fear. Open yourself up to the possibilities. I don't know what possibilities will happen. Open yourself up. Make yourself vulnerable. You're confident enough to be vulnerable. Don't be afraid to be vulnerable because you're not weak. It's fine. Nobody can hurt you. People can try to hurt you. One of the best medrashes in the world is on Tuesday. What did God create on Tuesday? Anybody remembers? He created on Tuesday, the third day of creation, all of produce vegetables, trees, everything that grows, including minerals in the earth, including iron. And when the trees suddenly saw iron, they began to tremble, the Midrash says. Why? Because with iron, the trees will be cut down. So God told the trees, calm down. No axe will be able to fell any tree without a wooden handle. In other words, the tree will have to give the axe its handle in order to cut it down. And the trees calm down. What God was telling the trees is, nobody can cut you down without your own consent. Nobody can cut you down if you don't allow them to cut you down. Of course you can tell me something obnoxious. Of course you can reject me. Of course you can tell me after my speech this was the most boring, insensitive, stupid, ridiculous, absurd, fundamentalist, orthodox speech I ever heard in my life. Of course I can walk into a store and somebody is rude to me. Of course on the telephone somebody could say something that's not nice. But they will not cut me down without my consent. Only if I really agree with them on some level will they then, through their words, trigger that emotion in me and make me feel horrible. But if I know who I am, you can't cut me down unless I agree with you. It's true in relationships. Don't be afraid because nobody can cut you down and hurt you without your consent. They may say things or do things, but you have to choose if it's going to hurt you. And if you come from a place of inner well-being and wholesomeness, no one can cut you down without your consent. This is difficult stuff to internalize. If you think it's easy to internalize, you're in la-la land. This is daily work of reaching a place of inner wholesomeness where nobody cuts you down without your consent. Because you're living from the blue skies and not from the clouds. Get it? This is what I have to say. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.